Bless you. Yeah. Man. I love a house who understands honor. That is just beautiful seeing those young people just honor their pastor. And wow. That takes you far. That'll take you far when you do that. Well, it's such a joy to be here. I, I um, as Pastor said, uh, was here several years ago and, and just really did feel a genuine connection. And uh, was uh, as I was coming back, I, I, there were a couple other churches that invited me to come, but I thought, I, I feel like I'm supposed to go there and supposed to call them, but I don't want to, I, I don't ever really do that. And, and not because of pride, I just, you know, it's just, I, I'd already had a couple reach out and and then uh, I was like, nah, I got to call him. It's, it's probably not going to work. It's so late notice. But, man, it was just so good to uh, have that response. But it's good to be with you. I know that what the Lord is doing in this place is um, creating this place as a launch pad. It is not just uh, something that is going to be, I just see, just, uh, just as we were pulling up on this property today, I just felt like I just saw this incredible, almost like a runway of just launching uh, ministries, launching, launching works that are going to be uh, in multiple different ways, multiple different areas of, of society. Um, and that there's, there's stuff in business that, that this church is going to speak into prophetically and going to have a network in. Um, also in uh, education and, and multiple different levels. I just saw this as a launch pad. And uh, be prepared uh, for that because it, it's not going to be uh, something that's just going to come out of one or two. It's going to be you collectively. And it's going to be you as the body uh, functioning in that and working in that. So... Uh, just as a, as a prophetic word, I just released that. This, this place is a launch pad, and it's a rocket launcher, you know, of, of the Spirit. And that's what the Lord wants to do with you. You know, I, I'm probably taking more time than I should to say that, but this, is, this falls in line with this. You know, so many times you think things, when you're in the presence of people, you think little encounters are, are nothing in the moment. The big, the, you know... It, 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 this is not what I was going to say at all, but you, you see in, in Luke uh, chapter 4 when Jesus, you know, just an average size Jewish man, sort of waddling, if you will, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but into a synagogue and doing something that every Jewish man, nearly everyone would do on a daily basis by reading from the scroll and giving. But something, this day is different. Because he's throwing down the gauntlet and he's declaring war against the kingdom of darkness. And it, it catches demons by surprise. You see, and later on, you know, a, a demonized person in that atmosphere, in a synagogue, screams out, what are we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you now come to destroy us? Because the spirit realm understands this little picture of this little Jewish man is so simple in the natural, but in the spirit realm, they know something massive is occurring and happening. And when we see things from the natural, we're missing what's happening in the spiritual. It, it just even as a natural analogy, this is not at all what I was going to say. I'm sorry, but I, I got to say this. But it just as, a, as an illustration of this, I don't normally tell stories like this because I don't want to sound like name dropping. And I, I hope it doesn't sound that way. But I, I, was, I was invited, a, a friend of, of ours who, who was a, kind of a star basketball player for Kansas City uh, 
had called me on the phone and says, I want you to meet a friend of mine. He's a, a, the center uh, for the LA Lakers. His name is Tark Black. And he said, uh, I want you to meet him. I feel like the Lord has, has something you, for your, you to speak to him. And people are always trying to set me up like that. And I usually don't like it, but I was like, I don't know. We'll get a lunch out of this and, you know, go for it, you know. And I went there, and as soon as this young man came in the room, and Tark is ginormous, you know. He's from Memphis, and big kid. And, not a kid, he's a man, big man. Uh, just a young man, kid to me at my age. But he walks in the room, and, and I could see there was a prophetic thing on his life. And he had this sweet little young lady with him that they were just, just starting to date. And he kind of leans over, and he goes, hey. This girl, I'm not engaged or anything. This is somebody I'm just kind of dating. We, we, were, we did this at the last minute. She and I were supposed to go out, so I just brought her along. He goes, I'm not even sure she's a believer. And I was like, got it. He goes, so I probably won't date her any longer because I, I only want to date believers. And we sat down, and as we did, I turned to her, and the, I didn't have, I had a word for Tarek. I just said, I said, I don't know what your contract situation is with the Lakers. I said, but they're about to offer you a multi-million dollar deal and I said, and I see it coming six months from now, and it's going to be, I said, I'm, I'm getting $8 million. And that's, it turns out six months to the day later, he was offered a permanent position with the Lakers, and it was $8 million. Now, I only say that to say that that caught Tarek's attention. And then I turned to the young lady, and I said, there's a friend of yours. I said, there's a, your brother is struggling with his own identity. But there's a, and it's, it's something, and she shared with me later what that was. I won't go into that. But it was right on. And I said, but there's a, there's a friend of yours that something bad happened to. And I said, and she's challenging a system that's going to sort of pull the cork and expose and start others exposing things that have been abusing and wounding people for a long time. And I said, but it's, it's her taking a massive risk. And she's not a believer, but this is going to be the start of something for her to open up to the gospel. Now, this young lady's not even a Christian yet. And she goes, do you know who you're talking about? And I said, I think it has to do with something of a, like a sexual offense type thing. And she goes, do you know who you're talking about? And I said, no. And I said, I don't even know you. And she goes, first of all, you're right about my brother. She goes, secondly, she goes, you're talking about my best friend, Taylor Swift. And she pulled out a picture, showed me a picture. I didn't know who Taylor Swift was. I mean, I knew <laughs> you kids out there know who she is. I didn't know. And she showed me a picture. She goes, she's going in for a lawsuit right now because somebody, you know, touched her inappropriately. And I just, and she goes, what you're saying is that's going to open the door for a lot of other exposing of things like that that happen. And I looked at her and I said, well, that's what I'm seeing. And I hope... And that young lady ended up committing her life to Christ after that because of that word. And now she and Tark are married and they got a baby and it's a sweet family. But here's the point of it. I didn't know who that was I was talking about. That could have been some friend in high school. That could have been anything at all. And, and, and now look what's happened. Look at what's been exposed in Hollywood and what's taking place. And if you look at the timeline of it, it really all goes back to about that time with that lawsuit with Taylor. And I'm saying that to say this. There's so much ministry the Lord has for you and I. And to us, it may look like something so insignificant, but have such profound impact in our community. That started off with just a lunch that I was kind of annoyed with and didn't want to go to. But look at the impact that it had. And that has actually opened up for 
this young lady, Kennedy, to begin to really witness and share. Now Kennedy's on fire for Jesus, and she's preaching to Taylor, and Taylor's hearing the gospel on a regular basis. Pray for her. But that opened the door for that, but it seemed like a nothing moment. But the eternal impact that that could have. Guys, you have those around you all the time. You really do. So I say that for your benefit, and this is a church that's going to be a church that will be that way. And that it's going to be, it's going to be that, that kind of testimony of this church, I'm telling you. Okay. I'll stop preaching and start preaching. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry, I had to say that. I just, I knew, and I don't like, you know, I don't like telling stories about people like that because I don't want to sound, again, like it's name dropping, but I felt like you need to understand the profound impact of what just the smallest little event can have. So I hope that blesses somebody. My first book, Do What Jesus Did, we've got copies of this back there. This stuff helps me go do missions trips. As pastor said, I have a heart for the Middle East. I've been working uh, in the Muslim world for some time. I was just in, the Lord spoke to me. I'll share more about this tonight, but the Lord spoke to me uh, back uh, earlier part of this year to go to Afghanistan and to Mosul in the middle of Ramadan. Anybody knows the Muslim world, that's like naturally stupid. You don't go in the middle of Ramadan, you know, in a, in a very serious Muslim where ISIS and the Taliban is and all that stuff. But the Lord made it really clear to me to go then. And I mean, just miraculous things happen. I can't wait to tell you about it. We hit the streets and I mean, they'll, they'll, two different times we should have been killed and God spared us and, and ended up uh, rocking uh, people. And we ended up with a Taliban leader giving his life to Christ. And now he's on fire for Jesus and just amazing things that took place. But anyway, uh, well, like I said, I'll share more about that tonight. But do what Jesus did. The premise of the book is Jesus didn't just to come show us what he could do as the son of God. He came to show you what you can do. That was the basis of, of his life and, and coming and turning around with salvation and with redemption. But to reinstate what the first Adam had given away, to see that dominion, authority, and power reinstated, and to show us what we could live like, what the intent was of, of us living as the original Adam and a, and a reflection of that. Second book is uh, Identity Thief, and it's, it's exposing how that all of us have really been hacked uh, Satan has stolen our power and our authority, and then he's, he's taken, it's a whole different level of, uh, so ever had anybody steal your credit card information and spend their money, spend your money as if they're you? That's identity theft, right? Well, that's what Satan's done with our power and our authority. And that's all of these using our power and our authority to destroy humanity, racism, murder, rape, you know, pride, all those things, destroying the planet with it. And that's our power and authority to do the creative things that Jesus came to do. And so this is talking about how to expose those lies and to step back into that true place of authority. We have a workbook that goes with the first book of Do What Jesus Did. And this is, man, this will get you, this is an activation guide. We call this the field manual. And uh, this really gets you stepping out and doing things. It's filled with tons of activations and just uh, stepping out so that it's not just something you're reading about, oh, those people can do cool stuff. No, this is about you and about you stepping into that. So anyway, we have these for you uh, out there and many more resources if you're interested. Um, put your finger in your Bible, if you would, for me in Luke uh, chapter 5. You know, I, I, I've spent a short amount of time with your pastors, but man, I, I just love them. 
I, I, I just feel such a connection with them and I feel their hearts I hear, when I hear them talk about this area and, and, and where the Lord has, has placed them here. I just could so feel their heart for you and love for you and that's just amazing. And I just want to, I want to bless that and encourage that and come along behind that, you know. Uh, you have so many evangelists that kind of come into a place and, you know, want to draw everybody to themselves. And I'm not saying, yeah, I don't say that against them. I just say it, 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 it can get into that. Uh, but my passion is to come and really build up the local church. I want to come and really build up the local pastors and the local, uh, because, you know, the local church is the hope of the world, you know. A guy, you know, coming in and flying out the next day is not the hope of the world. But coming in and building up and what's happening here, that's what's going to bring change and going to bring revival uh, to the area. And, uh, I, you know, I grew up, I, just let me tell you, give a little bit more introduction about myself. I, I planted a church in Aurora, Illinois. When I did that, Aurora is the second largest city in Illinois, only second to Chicago. Aurora was an interesting town when we went there. All the best church planting people said, do not go there. Do not plant a church. It will not work. And so that's how we knew it would work. And that's how we knew we were supposed to go. Uh, because it, we looked at it and, and we saw that uh, the, the level of desperation was so high. And let me tell you something. When you see, people ask me all the time, because I've, I've ministered in 51 different countries around the world. And people ask me all the time, in China and in the Middle East and, and South America and Africa and India. I've been in all those places. They're like, it, it, do they see more miracles than we because they have a higher level of faith? And I say, no, I believe it's because they have a higher level of desperation. Desperation invites kingdom activity. When you're in a place of desperation, it just flags kingdom activity to come. And so uh, I went to Aurora. There was a place in desperation. Gangs ruled the city. Uh, the Latin Kings was the largest gang throughout the entire area, outside of the Mafia, uh, and it, it ruled our city. And it, there, was, there was all sorts of crime. It was, uh, it was terrible. Again, one of the top ten most violent cities, ranked as one of the top ten most violent cities in the nation. If you've seen the TV show Gangland, and I, I told the first service, you guys are probably way too spiritual to know what that show is, but you have a friend who's less spiritual, and they've told you about it. Uh, but anyway, they, they did five episodes on our city, on the city of Aurora. And uh, here's the thing is that uh, crime was ruling. There was blood running in the streets. Mayor and, and chief of police told me, where you're wanting to plant a church is the worst possible place to plant one. Uh, and it kind of, things were kind of coming to a head. We began to go and hit the streets and we would pray. We would go to places where there were violent crimes, where they were drive-by shootings, murders, uh, rapes, whatever the case. And we would go to those particular spots and within a couple of blocks radius, our objective was to win three people to Christ in that area. And uh, this was what the message we were telling the enemy. If you take one of ours, we're taking three of yours. You may come after them, but it's going to cost you. And it's going to be more expensive for you to kill people here in Aurora. Your, your kingdom's going to lose more than we're going to lose. And that began to make crime deplete. Crime started dropping. We started seeing uh, crime drop dramatically. And what happens, though, is that the gangs begin to lose respect. And in gang lingo, fear means respect. If you fear me, then you respect me. If you don't fear me, if you're not afraid of me, then you have no respect for me. So they translate fear as respect. And so people began to become less and less afraid because they began to see 
things change and shift. Well, what began to happen, now you would think that that made no association. Gang members didn't care if a bunch of people got, got saved. But see, in the spirit realm, something was happening. It was, it was a spirit realm communication. And so this wasn't just a natural you know, shift, it was a spiritual shift that was taking place. And what ended up happening is, is crime dropped so dramatically that the gangs felt like they had no respect. And so they were threatening that 2013 would be the bloodiest year in all of Aurora's history. That there would be more killings in that year than of any part of any time because they wanted to regain their respect. So if you saw the movie Father of Lights, uh, you saw this happen. We invited the three top gang members uh, throughout the Chicago land of the Latin Kings into our church and we ministered to them. They began to feel heat, electricity. They were scared to come because they had heard about the miracles and it scared them. And so they were afraid to come and meet with us, but they began to feel this transforming power. They were being healed in their bodies. They were feeling electricity. And at the end of that particular scene, if you've seen Father of Lights, you know, I ended up uh, offering them to come to Jesus and they all gave their lives to Christ. And the end of that story is, is that in 2013, we went a full calendar year without one homicide in Aurora, Illinois. Guys, that had not happened for 66 years. For 66 years. Second largest city, quarter million people in the city of Illinois. It, it changed the city so dramatically. Crime dropped so dramatically that they ended up laying off a third of the police staff in the APD because police officers were complaining about being bored. It's true. And it was incredible. The, the, the end of that, the, the, the city ended up naming a day after our church. And they still celebrate that day, you know, being named after our church. And uh, we got a commission from the, uh, uh, from the mayor's office and from the city for our contribution. And all we were contributing was going out and praying and ministering to people. But they recognized it. And when the, the, that story of, of Aurora going without any homicides... That ended up being in every major newspaper and every, tele, every TV news thing around the country. Uh, that was in every major newspaper, NBC, uh, CNN, Fox, uh, the BBC, uh, all did segments on it. And a matter of fact, the BBC was there when a chief of police from Italy and from France flew over to meet with our chief of police to study police intelligence, to find out how the crime dropped. And our chief of police on, on uh, the BBC says, he says, you cannot just study our police intelligence. He says, you've got to study, and he named our church. He goes, you've got to study what that little church has been doing. He says, it's been transforming our city. And when it was on the headlines of the, of, of, uh, the Chicago Tri Tribune, the headlines read, Aurora, the transformation city. Now, guys, let me tell you something. My church was never more than about 220 people. Look around this room. You got more than that in here right now. Think of the impact, and that's just one service. Think of the impact this church can have. What's in this room and what's in the first service together could transform this world just here. You know, when we look at Scripture... And we see things, we see it because we see it through the lens of how we've heard it. 
How many of you grew up in Sunday school, catechism classes, things like that? Anybody growing up that? How many of you remember flannel graph? You remember the paper, uh, you know, cartoon versions of the story, and it had car, you know, corduroy material on the back, and it's held up for flannel. Anybody remember that? See, my parents, they pastored in the hood in Atlanta. They were missionaries in Japan, but when they came back, they pastored in the hood. So we could not afford brand new flannel graph. So we had hand-me-down flannel graph from the First Baptist Church of Chattahoochee. So ours was a little tattered, a little torn. So I grew up thinking Peter was an amputee. Somebody ripped off Peter's leg, and I was like, okay, I don't get it. He can multiply bread and fish. Can't he heal Peter's leg or at least give us new flannel graph, you know? But you see, we see everything through that. So we hear the stories. Let me translate. I said this first verse. Let me translate for you younger people so you understand what Because you don't know what flannel graph is. Veggie tales. That's your flannel graph, okay? We didn't have that sophisticated flannel graph. So here's the deal. We've seen the stories so many times, and we've heard the stories, that we've become inoculated to the surprise of what's about to happen next. We anticipate what's going to happen because we grew up hearing about it. But in, when you're in this situation where people have not heard about it, they don't know what to anticipate. The, the, the disciples and Jesus even himself, we don't know that Jesus knew what was going to happen next because the Philippians chapter 2 says he came as a normal human being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he didn't have any a greater advantage than you and I have. Okay? So he's coming. He's operating in faith too. You know, if you know something's going to happen, for sure, how much faith does it require? But when you're not sure and you're doing it anyway, well, then that's real faith, isn't it? I mean, that's when the rubber meets the road. So we don't even know that Jesus knew. He's a human being operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, not his own God powers, but the power of the Holy Spirit. So here, the disciples, we're not sure the disciples knew what was going to happen next. So we don't even know that Jesus did. So we anticipate what's going to happen. So I want you to look at this passage of the story as if you don't know what's going to happen and look at it from the perspective as if they don't know what's going to happen. Now, we have this as recorded. Luke, I, I had to get really basic with my church because my church was like half of them were, you know, coming off of heroin, so they were on methadone and they'd be in church, uh, you know, falling. So I had to be loud and obnoxious. So give me a little grace here to sort of be a hood pastor. Will you do that? Will you give me a little grace? You know, I know I'm sort of in the Bible beltish area. Don't unbuckle that thing and beat me with it, please. Just give me a little grace. Give me a little grace to fill in the blanks. Because how many of you know Luke's a man? You realize, I, I had to get really simple with my church. Luke is a man. Now, I know you're, you're, you're used to Pastor Dalton, and he, he's, he's you, drop the bar down for me, okay? Just don't raise that bar up so high. Luke's a man. Now, how many of you ladies know men skip details? Three women know men. None of the rest of you clearly do because men skip details all the time. If you pull our man card and you flip that baby over, right on the back it says, must skip details, especially with wife. And if you don't, this gets pulled, you know? And so I, I was sharing with the first church, I was two and a half weeks in Zimbabwe and, and almost got arrested and thrown in jail for preaching and praying for people on the streets. And my wife picks me up at the airport after being gone for two and a half weeks and says, well, how did it go? And I gave her a 10-minute version of what happened over two and a half weeks. Why? Men skip details. So we're going to give Luke grace, and you're going to give me grace to fill in the details. Will you do that? 
Give me a little grace to sort of fill in the details of what this doesn't say. But first, let's take a look at what it says, okay? So this is Luke 5, 1 through 4. It says, one day Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It says, and great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and they were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now, let's go out where it's deeper and let's catch some fish. Now, that's what the text says. Now, again, Luke's a man. He skips details, right? So will you give me the grace to sort of fill in some of the details? Now, anybody who does public speaking knows that if you're out in the open and you don't have a PA system, that you have to project your voice in order for people to hear you. And you got to get distance from your crowd because if they're right up on you, people absorb sound and they can't hear you. Jesus is trying to get further back so people can hear him, but they keep pushing up against him. So he can't get any further away without getting wet. He looks over and how long had Peter and his crew been fishing according to what we know the rest of scripture says? All night. How much fish has he caught? None. Zero fish. How many of you know fishermen without fish are not nice people? And so he's there. He hasn't caught, they haven't caught fish. And so I think it kind of looks something like this, okay? You're going to give me the grace to fill in the blanks, right? So Peter's over there with his crew, and he's like, get that seaweed out of those nets. Is that driftwood? Get it out of there. Get those seashells out of there. Is that a flip-flop? Get it out of there. Get that bicycle tire out of there. I can't believe people are throwing their garbage in this lake. Don't they know we have to fish in this lake? We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught any fish. I got to go home. I got to tell the wife. She's going to say, where's the money? Where's the fish? I'm going to say, we don't have any money. We don't have any fish. And my mother-in-law lives with us. (laughs) She's going to say, I told you you should have married Barnabas. He's an accountant. He's bringing home a paycheck. I hate this job. Luke doesn't say any of that. Ladies, men skip details, right? We're working with that. About that time, Jesus steps over and he says, Hey, Peter, would you lend me your boat? I imagine Peter looks at him and says, You know what? You can have the stupid boat. I hate these boats. I hate these nets. I hate this job. Right now, if eBay was here, I'd sell it for five bucks, but it's not, and I want to chop it up and sell it as firewood. Yes, please take the boat. And Jesus is like, dude, I only want to borrow your boat. He's like, yes, take it. So Jesus steps in, he pushes it out. Peter and his crew go back to cleaning their nets. Right about the time they get the nets perfectly clean. They're laying them up to dry in the nice, warm Middle Eastern sun. They're grabbing their lunch pails. They're heading home. Right as they're walking away, Jesus finishes up his message, wraps up and says, Hey, Peter, I've got an idea. Let's go fishing. Now, see, you've heard this story over and over, and that doesn't sound like it doesn't make sense. But it doesn't make any sense. I imagine Peter turns back and looks at him and says, You're not from around here, are you? You may not have noticed, but you're here in the Middle East. Here in the Middle East, fish try to get as far away from the sun as possible. Do you see that yellow disc in the sky? 
That is called the sun. Fish are cold-blooded creatures. They try to get as far away from that thing as possible. So they feed at night, and then they go down low where it's cooler because they're trying to get away from that yellow disc in the sky. You clearly know nothing about fishing. You should go build a table and chairs. But then he says something absolutely profound. Peter then says, but... Because you say so, we will. Don't forget that. Because you say so, we will. So can you imagine Peter turning around to his crew, trying to coax them back into the boat? Come on, let's go get in the boat. Let's get to the nets. Let's go. They're like, no, Peter. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Are you seriously taking fishing trips, tri- tips from this carpenter that now thinks he's a rabbi? Seriously? No, if we go out there, we will be the laughing stock of the fishing industry. No, we are not going out there. And he's like, please, please, maybe he'll give us a tip. Something to get my mother-in-law off my back. Come on, get in the boat. He finally coaxes them back into the boat. And then they start going off. And what about all the other fishermen crews at shore? They're looking over going, hey, Peter, what are you doing? Are you going fishing? Hey, look, crazy Peter thinks there's fish out there. And Peter's like, no, I don't. I really don't. And they're like, hey, look at crazy Peter as he does the row of shame out to the middle of the lake. And then he gets to the middle of the lake and he's like, okay, clearly you just want a fishing demonstration. You stand by the edge of the boat. You take the nets that should be light and dry, but are wet and heavy, thank you, and you throw them over the side, and you wait for fish like this, and may I point out that are not there. You better give me a tip. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, Peter, I know what's wrong. This is the same story, borrowing from one of the other Gospels of the same story. He says, I know what's wrong. You see, you have your nets on the wrong side of the boat. If you'd pick your nets up from this side of the boat and you would put them over on that side of the boat, (laughs) you catch fish. And Peter's like, Really? Really? Jesus, I'm sorry, let me get this straight. You think four, six feet over, lying under the brim of the water, there are fish under there going, (laughs) they have their net on the wrong side of the boat. (laughs) They think we're over there, but we're over here. (laughs) They'll never know. Trust me, Jesus, that's not happening. But because you say so, we will. And the crew's like, no, Peter, don't you do it. Don't you dare. All the crews are watching back. We will be the laughing stock. Don't you do it, Peter. He's like, they're laughing already. Let's just get it over with. And so they pick their nets up. They start to walk over. What about those crews back at shore? They're like, hey, Peter. What are you doing? 
Do you think there's fish on the other side of the boat? Hey, look, Crazy Peter thinks there's fish on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, I don't. I really don't. And he gets over to the other side. And he throws the net down and he goes, see, I told you there were no fish. Fish. We got fish. Pull the net up. The net's full of fish. They pull it up, dump it in the boat. And he's like, throw it over again. They throw it over again. It fills up again. He's like, pull it up. They pull it up. He throws it again. Throw it over again. He's like, they were under there all night. We were on the wrong side all night long. They were laughing at us. This is a crazy story. The story makes no sense. I learned a long time ago, God doesn't know what to me to make sense. Long time ago. All of a sudden, Peter's like, what about all the fishing crews back in shore? They're like, crazy Peter was right. Get the boats, get the nets. We were on the wrong side. And Peter's like, hey, he's got another boat back in shore. Get that boat out here. We got fish. Not that side. Put an X on the other side. That's where we fish from. That's a sweet spot side. The Bible says both boats so filled with fish. Sinking all the way that they barely make it back to shore. This is a crazy story. Couldn't Jesus just make the fish swim to the other side and jump in the nets? See, Jesus was after something different. Peter gets back to the shore and he realizes, I'm a professional fisherman. I know how to catch fish. Peter realized the difference here wasn't in the technique. It wasn't in the style. It wasn't in the approach. The difference here was in the presence on the boat. The presence on the boat made all the difference. The presence made all the difference. And the scripture says Peter dropped to his knees in front of Jesus. And he said, Jesus... You need to go away from me. You need to get as far away from me as possible. Somebody as good as you should not be this close to a guy as bad as I am. Best thing you could do is just go away now. You hang around me. I'll disappoint you. Pretty much everybody's disappointed in me. Yeah, Jesus, the best thing you could do is just just go now. Jesus looks at Peter. He goes, oh, Peter, you don't get it. Peter, you've been chasing minnows your whole life. And you've been chasing the wrong catch. I didn't make you to go after little fish. I made you for the big catch. I made you to catch people. And you've spent your whole life chasing minnows. 
And then what Jesus says to Peter next is not that profound. But he looks at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, follow me. Now, if you study that, there's not much of a pitch there. Follow me. That's it. It's not like motivational speakers are studying that talk to figure out how to get people to follow you. And yet the scripture says, Peter abandons the boats, the nets, and what did Peter want? Fish. He abandons the fish. He'd probably been crying out to God all night long the night before for those fish, and he just walks away from them to follow Jesus. You see, my friends, Peter wanted fish. But what did Jesus want? Because you say so, we will. When Jesus asked Peter, would you lend me your boat? He was telling Peter, that boat represented Peter's life. And he was saying, Peter, if you'll lend me your boat and you let me put my presence on your boat, let me put my presence on your life. We'll catch far more than you could ever catch. We'll do far more than you could ever do on your own. You just let me put my presence on your life. Matthew, tax collector, has a table filled with money, more than likely, and Jesus walks up and says, hey, Matthew, follow me. And the Bible says Matthew forsakes his table, probably filled with cash, to follow Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Can you imagine these guys walking past their family members? Excuse me, where are you going? Following him. To do what? He didn't say. For how long? He didn't say that either. And why are you doing this? Because everything inside of me says, I have to have that presence on this boat. I don't care who laughs at me. I don't care if I fail at it. I've got to have that presence on this boat. No matter what. No matter what. You see, my friends, that was a prophetic picture. Those fish into those nets that would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. It was a prophetic picture of what was to come when the Peter and the apostles stood up, filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, and the presence was on them. And at the sound of the presence on their boats, thousands came running just like those fish into those nets. Will you lend him your boat? Will you lend him your boat in going and praying for people? Will you lend him your boat in going and sharing the gospel with people? Will you lend him your boat when you could get mocked? Will you lend him your boat when you could possibly die? One day in my church, a young woman started coming. 
And her living boyfriend, he was a part of the Latin Kings, and his street name was Hitler. He was a very dangerous man. He was the number two guy in the Latin Kings at that time. And she started coming to the church for a couple of months, and every year I would do a talk on sex. And I would explain what sex is. Sex is God's blessing on marriage, and the best sex is always in marriage, because that's what God designed it for, as a blessing on marriage. Anything outside of that is less than God's best, and it breaks God's heart because he wants us to have the best. He loves us, and he wants us to have the best. And sex clearly defined in scriptures between a man and a woman. And so he'd break all that down and explain that. And so she goes home, and she tells Hitler, I'm not having sex with you anymore. Because Robbie said, <laughs> sex outside of marriage is sin, and it breaks God's heart. I'm not going to break God's heart. So you can imagine how he responded. This warm feeling comes across him. Tears begin to flow down his face. He looks up and he says, I love Robbie. That is a great man of God. We'll do whatever he says. It's my fantasy of how he responded, but that's not what he said at all. He looked at her and he goes, you go tell that preacher that I'm coming there next Sunday. I'm going to sit on the front row. And if he doesn't get up and say he's wrong and taking it back, I'm going to pop him in the head in front of the whole church. She called me on the phone. She was crying. She goes, you can't get up to preach next Sunday. She goes, you can't. She goes, you know Hitler. You know he'll do it. And she goes, he'll show up. He'll do it. I said, he's not going to do it. He's not going to show up. She goes, yes, he will. I said, no, he won't. She goes, yes, he will. I said, you follow what Jesus says no matter what. And God will bless you. I said, but he's not going to show up. He's just mad and mouthing off. Within a week, he'll forget. She goes, no, he won't. And so the next Sunday, I'm in my office kind of preparing my notes to speak on part two. And all of a sudden, I hear this running up the stairs. And Carlos Lopez, our worship pastor, who used to be in the Latin Kings, bursts in my office. And he's like, dude. And it's sort of like saying pastor in our community. And he's like, dude. He's like, Hitler just walked in downstairs, and he's strapping. And I said, you saw the gun? And he goes, yeah. He goes, it's tucked in the, his belt up, up under his shirt in his back. I said, you definitely saw the gun? He goes, yes. And I was like, okay. And he goes, he goes, what do we do? He goes, please don't ask me to disarm him. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to ask you to disarm him. I said, but I said, do this. Tell Nicole the girl who's supposed to do announcements. I'll do announcements instead. And he goes, I really feel like you're supposed to do worship too. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you're doing worship. I'll do announcements. I'll preach. And I said, but don't tell anybody because I don't want to freak anybody out. And I said, let's, you know, let's go down. So we go downstairs and so we get up. And I wish I could say I was fearless and confident. That would be lying. I got up and I'm like, welcome to church this morning. We're so happy to have all of you here. And, and the people in the back are going, oh, look, the Holy Spirit's on Robbie already. Oh, you can see the anointing just dripping off of him. It's so beautiful. And I'm like running back and forth. I'm like, children's ministry over here, coffee and donuts here, bathrooms are here. Man, it looked like a Wimbledon match. I was like, if he's going to take a shot, he better be quick, because I ain't making it easy for him. This is not going to be a gimme. And I'm bouncing around back and forth, but he just sat there with his head turned to the side like this and his brow kind of bent. And, and I'm going back and forth, back and forth, and he never moves his eyes. I do part two, do a recap on part one, finish up the message, and I'm watching him. And then all of a sudden, we get to a time of ministry where we're going to pray for people, and we start to do that, and all of a sudden, he just 
shakes his head and he looks around and he gets up quietly and he just leaves. I was like, what happened? A couple of weeks later, I called her and I said, hey, what, 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 he came home, what did he say? She didn't come because she was scared. And she's like, he just walked in and said, that, that place is weird. I'm never going back to that, that place again. Those people are crazy. And I told her what I saw and she's like, that's strange. A couple of weeks pass. And the Aurora Police Department, along with the Chicago Police Department, arrested 24 of the top Latin kings throughout the Chicago land. We got a picture for you. That was the, this was the front cover of the Chicago Tribune. And you can see where that slash goes down to the left side and where it goes over the guy's eyes at the bottom, second from the bottom there, that's Hitler. They had six murder charges against him. That was the number one guy they were after in this sting. And so his brother is a, is a drug dealer that goes to our church, and his street name is Pistol Pete. And so I went up to him the next Sunday, and I said, hey, I said, I want to talk to Hitler. And he goes, well, they're in jail. And he, I said, I know. I said, but I'm going to come to jail, and I want to see him and talk to him. He goes, well, he goes, I can't get word to him. He goes, they're in isolation. I said, don't lie to me. Tell him I'm coming to see him on Thursday. And he said, okay, I will. And so I showed up at the jail, and they brought him in, and he's in this orange jumper, and his legs are shackled, his hands are cuffed. I've never seen anybody so angry in my entire life as this guy shuffles in. And he points at me and he says, he goes, what do you want? And I said, well, I want to talk to you. And he goes, well, I got a question for you. And I said, what's that? And he goes, what did you do to me that day I came to your church? And I said, what did I do to you? What are you talking about? He goes, I was going to pop you in the head in front of the whole church. And he goes, as soon as I sat down in that seat, I was frozen and I couldn't move. He goes, did you hex me? And I was like, no, I didn't hex you. I said, dude, that was God keeping you from doing something stupid. And I was just using basic street terms, things that he would understand. And I said, see, Hitler, I said, it's like this is the life that you've made for yourself. And you thought it was the best life. And you thought it was perfect. And it's ended up with you slinging and ended up with crime and all these things. And I said, you thought it was the best life for you. And it's all turned out to end up be jacked up and twisted and messed up and broken. I said, but Jesus has come to make a deal with you today, Hitler. I said, he has this life that he always designed you to live, designed you to live in your life. I said, but you've settled for the jacked up, twisted life. And Jesus died so that you would have this life. And he's saying, today, let's make a deal. I'll take the jacked up, twisted life and I'll give you the life you were always meant to live. I said, Hitler, will you take the deal? And he shoves away from the table and he goes, that deal's not for me. He said, that deal's for people like you and Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. He said, Robbie, six murders? He goes, they don't know the half of what I've done. He later told me what all he had done, and it was mind-blowing. But right then and there, he said, Robbie, I have tied men to the steering wheels of their cars. And I've lit this, soaked them in gasoline and lit them on fire. And I looked through their windshields and laughed at them as they begged me for their lives. And I laughed as they died. He said, that deal's not for me. I've gone too far. And I grabbed my Bible and I said, Hitler, you don't understand how Jesus works. I said, this is the Bible. 
I said, we call this the holy word of God. And I said, Hitler, this portion of the Bible is called the New Testament. I said, we hear this as the very voice of God himself. I said, Hitler, half of this portion of the Bible was written by a murderer. And he was murdering Jesus' own people. And Jesus chose him to write what we call the holy word of God. I said, don't you see, Hitler, the deal? It's still right there on the table. And with that, he dropped his head and he burst into tears and he said, I'll take the deal. I'll take the deal. And right there we prayed and he gave his life to Jesus, tears streaming down his face. His brother later told me, he goes, you saw Hitler cry? And I said, yeah. And he says, Robbie, he said, I'm older than him. And he goes, even when he was six years old and I would watch our stepdad beat him till he was half dead, I never saw him shed his entire life one tear. And he goes, you saw Hitler cry. And he says, I've only seen him laugh when he was torturing people. I said, dude, you're going to love the rest of this story. As soon as we were done praying and he was giving his life to Jesus, he lifted his head and he began to shrug his shoulders and he began to giggle like a little kid and just giggle and laugh like a little kid. And he goes, it's gone. It's gone. It's all gone. And I said, what's gone? He said, all the anger, the hatred, the rage. He said, all of it was like this massive rock. And the shame was strapped to my back. And he said, as soon as I said that prayer, it snapped off. And he goes, it's gone. I can't believe it's all gone. And I looked at him. I said, that's how Jesus does. About that time, a guard comes in and says, all right, time to get back to your cell. Hitler jumps up, salutes him, says, yes, sir. And the guard's like, whoa. He led him back to his cell, and I would go back, and I would go over Scripture with him every week, and I would disciple him. Hitler could barely read. He'd never been to school, so I had to get him a children's picture Bible. And he would sit there, and he would look at these little goofy cartoons as we would go through and talk about following. We'd look at the life of Joseph, and we'd do what Jesus says, no matter what. No matter if we think we know better, or we think he's smarter, we follow what he says. And we would go through all this together, and he would just sit there and look, and one day we were talking about the life of Paul. And he's looking at this, and he just interrupts me, and he says, Robbie? And I said, yeah, Hitler. And he looks up, and he goes, I got to get my story out. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Robbie, people don't know how far Jesus will go for them. He said, people don't know. And he goes, Robbie, I don't think anybody out there is telling them. He said, you could hate God, and you could tell him you hate him. You could tell him you wish you could spit in his face, and that you hate him so much, and he just keeps coming after you, and keeps telling you he loves you, and he keeps telling you how much he'll send even the guy you want to kill to come and tell you how much he loves you. He goes, Robbie, people don't know how far Jesus will go. He goes, I don't think anybody's telling them. I looked at him and I said, dude, I love you, but if you get your story out, Hitler, I said, that could get you the needle, or that could get you popped by the kings. And I said, bro, I don't want you to die. You know what he said to me? He held up that children's picture Bible and he goes, you told me they all died for this.
He said, you told me this was worth giving everything for. He said, now you're trying to tell me I should try to save my own skin. He said, probably the past few months in this stinking rotten prison have been the best months of my entire life. If they took me out today, it would be worth every one. And he goes, Robbie, people out there don't know how far Jesus will go. And he said, and I don't think anybody is telling them. And I said, oh, dude, you get it. You get it. Oh, that we, the church, would get it the way Hitler gets it. Will you lend him your boat? Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your life? Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your reputation? Praying for your neighbors who aren't believers. They may laugh at you. They may scoff. They may persecute you. Oh, my friends, if with all our hearts, all our lives, we would just say, because you say so, we will. Jesus heard that from Peter, and he said, I can build a church on that that can go through thousands of years of persecution and slaughter, and it will thrive and grow, and the gates of hell will never extinguish that fire. Just simply because you say so, we will. Let's pray. Father, I see in this room there's a solution to ISIS. I see in this room is the solution to the Taliban, is the solution to gang, is solution to the meth labs in this city. Spirit, fill us. We sang about your reckless love. Let us become a reckless people, filled with your love, compelled by your love. To never shrink back. Fill us, Holy Spirit. To step out with great boldness. To proclaim your goodness, your majesty, your love, your salvation. And to be that launch pad that you've called this church to be. Jesus' name.